You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader taking a turn in the host chair today. And with me are Will Doran and Colin Campbell. And later on, we'll have Anna Douglas and Craig Jarvis. Uh, So, uh, like a lot of the recent weeks, voter ID was back in the news uh, this week. Voter ID, early voting, and uh, other uh, restrictions that were put in place in 2013, but struck down uh, recently by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, so now the uh, the Supreme Court is uh, considering whether to grant a stay, but the the issue is mostly in the hands of uh, local county boards of elections now, uh, and uh, that brings us to a story that uh, Colin did this week that uh, had a lot of interest online uh, about uh, what the Republican Party here in North Carolina was telling counties and county officials um, about what they should do uh, when they uh, set early voting schedules. Uh, so Colin, what what happened there? Yeah, so to set the stage a little bit on this, um, now that this court ruling is out, uh, it basically forces every county to throw out their original uh, plan for early voting because now instead of required to have only 10 days of, of early voting, they now have to have 17. Uh, but there's no longer a minimum number of hours under the, the previous law that's been thrown out. Uh, the counties had a shorter number of days, but they had to offer the same number of hours as they offered for the last presidential election in 2012. Uh, so now they've got to figure out uh, new schedules uh, for every county. So the County Board of Elections is responsible for setting that. The only real minimum requirements is that it be over the course of 17 days. Um, and at a bare minimum, you, you have one location, typically the County Board of Elections office, and that office has to be open uh, business hours, weekdays, plus the morning of the Saturday before the election. Uh, so the boards that decide on these schedules are three-member boards. Uh, they are two, two of them are Republican in every county. One is a Democrat. Uh, that's based on the fact that the Republicans control the governor's mansion uh, and therefore the uh, bulk of the appointment process. Uh, so essentially you've got a, a partisan split that favors Republicans on boards in every single of the 100 counties, regardless of the, the partisan makeup of those counties. So as a result of that, the state Republican Party has been weighing in and encouraging the uh, Republicans on these boards uh, to adhere to what uh, they consider to be the uh, the best practices for early voting. And uh, one of those is less early voting. Their argument is that uh, because the judge's ruling forces uh, early voting sites to allow same-day registration, they feel like that offers an opportunity for fraud uh, because people can uh, register to vote and then go ahead and cast a ballot before all the paperwork is uh, necessarily finalized. Um, And they're also concerned about Sunday voting, the argument being that Uh, it's too much work for the polling workers to have to conceivably go to work seven days in a row. There's some family religious concerns about having stuff open on Sundays. Of course, the flip side to that is that uh, people feel like Sunday voting is uh, pretty crucial for African-American voters, many of whom whom have this souls to the polls uh, sort of event at their churches where they'll uh, go vote after church. Uh, So for a lot of people, uh, the elimination of Sunday voting in a lot of counties uh, is perceived as sort of a a curb on on African-American voting rights. 
Uh, and then the last thing that was in the memo from from Dallas Woodhouse that went out to these Republican county uh, board members uh, was regarding the location uh, of voting sites. And, and his suggestion was that uh, you didn't really need to worry about uh, college-specific sites uh, on, on campuses and that sort of thing, that, that college students have more opportunities to vote than anywhere else, which I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that. College students often don't have cars, and that's why they advocate for these on-campus polling sites. Uh, but that was sort of the gist of the memo. Um, we've seen some counties that have gone along with this memo, have uh, adopted plans that sort of follow this, others uh, that have, have sort of bucked the directive from the, the Republican Party and, and gone a slightly different direction, how they've uh, scheduled theirs and others that are somewhere in between. But uh, all of this is, is still in the works, and some of these plans will have to be uh, voted on by the full state board of elections uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, if there's some sort of division on the board, which uh, in a lot of cases there's going to be. Yeah, and so this is now playing out in the at, at the county levels, and Wake County, I think, added uh, hours from the 2012 election but they're in the, the very early uh, first week of the of voting they're only going to have one location and then Mecklenburg County it was reported uh, this week I think that uh, they're actually cutting hours from the 2012 um, uh, from the number of hours they had for early voting in the 2012 election so it seems like uh, different boards are approaching this in in different ways yeah and there's definitely been mobilization this is sort of Dallas Woodhouse says he's sort of reacting to this uh, from a lot of sort of Democrat-aligned uh, groups uh, that have really been trying to get people out to these board meetings and speak at public hearings in favor of more early voting sites, uh, more sites on, on college campuses. And I think in some places they've been successful with that. I think I saw Durham County uh, just this earlier this week um, set their sites, and they actually have four college campus ones. There's, uh, I think, two at the Durham Tech uh, Community College campuses, one at Duke, one at Central. So um, covering their bases in, in that regard, but other places, there's been definitely an effort. I think Watauga County among them to uh, uh, try to avoid having sites on campuses themselves, uh, ostensibly because parking can be an issue, but also, you know, the, the fewer college students vote, the uh, more advantageous it is to Republicans. There are not many Republican students on college campuses these days. And have have the Democrats put out anything to uh, their? members of the election boards that we know of? They haven't put out anything that was specifically sent to the election board members. They have put sort of a general thing out to Democrats in general, encouraging people to get in touch with their election board members and, and advocate for college campuses, for evening, weekend hours, sort of the opposite of what uh, the, the Republicans wanted to see. Um, but it doesn't seem like they were going directly to the board members, whereas the, the NC Republican Party actually has a, uh, a listserv set up of uh, county board of elections officials who are Republicans. Right. And of course, we don't know what each party's telling their various members behind the scenes. But th this was uh, something that was sent to to all elections board Republican members, right, from the from Dallas Woodhouse of the Republican Yeah, and he party. actually sent it was it was two separate emails. There was one that was sort of the longer version. And then a couple days later, he uh, sent out kind of a shorter version. And the shorter version was one that had the uh, reference to uh, party line changes uh, to early voting practices, which sort of raised a lot of eyebrows as, as being sort of blatantly saying we should set up early voting in a way to favor our party. Yeah, both in this email and I think in talking to you, he, it was uh, his, his intent was pretty nakedly partisan, right? Yeah, I mean, he's not... You know, he, he got called racist by his brother on Twitter today for uh, his uh, opposition to, to Sunday voting. But uh, Dallas Woodhouse is pretty clear about 
he wants uh, to advocate for things that uh, benefit the Republican Party because he is a unabashed partisan and this is his role. But ultimately, he's in his mind, he's just any other person who wants to weigh in. He's told me he's just one human being, the same as anyone else in North Carolina that might have uh, sent a message weighing in on this process to their elections officials. Yeah, and he, since he's the executive director of the Republican Party, he might have a little more influence. Yeah, than, than I your mean that's the person. The, the sort of the where you connect the dots here is that uh, the Republican Party sort of puts forth the list of names um, to be in these uh, appointed positions. They're ultimately appointed by the state board of elections members, uh, but the party does have a lot of role in deciding who gets to be on these boards. Um, and, and in fact, uh, Dallas is his own cousin. Cousin Eddie Woodhouse uh, was recently appointed to the Wake County Board, uh, sort of in a last-minute uh, effort to, to fill a vacancy uh, on on the uh, board here in Wake County. So um, that he, is he one have, interesting family. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could document their family tree, and I'm sure the family reunions must be fascinating to attend, if not, you know, tear your hair out by the end of them. Yeah, we should say. I, I think people might be doing a double take at the fact that his brother called him a racist on Twitter. His his brother is a, a Democratic operative, and so the two of them have uh, have have long had this uh, uh, back and forth uh, on, on C-SPAN and other. Yeah, I think they go shows. on Fox News about once a month and just debate each other as brothers because yeah. it's you know, quirky for the host. Like, look, we've got these two brothers, and they absolutely disagree on everything. But this is—it's kind of a new level for them because they don't normally. I mean, I don't have to watch them too much, but I—I I don't think they get terribly personal about it because um, it's usually you know. Let's debate whether Hillary Clinton sucks or not, um, as opposed to, you know, here's something you did and it was awful. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, also on the same voter ID front, uh, we've had the Republicans uh, attacking Roy Cooper over um, deciding that he's not going to defend the voter ID law anymore. He did defend it at the uh, district court level and at the appeals court level. Um, but now that the state has lost at the appeals court level, he's saying he's not going to defend it any further. Uh, Republicans uh, in the legislature and the governor's office had hired their own lawyers to defend it at those lower level courts too. And um, they will continue to uh, to pursue it. And in fact, uh, this week, uh, Governor McCrory uh, called on Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts to issue a stay. Uh, but uh, there was uh, some ads, Will, that you fact-checked uh, about talking, or I think it was actually a press release that you fact-checked, um, in which uh, McCrory talked about um, whether Roy Cooper uh, is uh, uh, within his legal rights to uh, to not defend the law anymore and whether he should be um, and whether he's doing his job by doing that and whether he's costing the state money, I guess, was the ultimate uh, the claim that you look cl- most closely at. Right. Yeah. And what the specific thing that I fact checked was uh, a uh, press release uh, from the governor. But uh, you could have gotten the same statement from any number of uh, other press releases or tweets or speeches or interviews with a number of uh, pretty high-profile Republican politicians around the state um, basically uh, boiled down to two different things, that Cooper is not doing his job as attorney general and that he is, in fact, costing the state money. Um, a lot of people called on him to uh, to decline to take his salary, to refund taxpayers, et cetera. Um, and so I looked into those two issues. Um, and what I found was there is some uh, 
real disagreement among legal scholars and uh, you know professional legal experts on what exactly the duty and responsibilities of the attorney general are in a case like this um, and whether he was within his rights to choose not to ask for another appeal. Um, some people say uh, that the attorney general has to always defend the state no matter what, um, but that's that's actually even a pretty uh, minority view these days. Um, most people, uh, it seems, agree that the attorney general can decline to defend laws that he believes are unconstitutional. Um, and that was the case when Cooper declined to uh, defend the state on HB2. He said he thinks it's unconstitutional and that since he took a uh, an oath to uphold the Constitution that, you know, it would violate his oath to defend that law. Um, the voter ID was different because, he, like you said, he had defended it in the trial court. He actually won at trial um, and then uh, continued on f- through the first uh, appeal after which, you know, they lost in the, the unanimous and very strongly worded dis- uh, decision uh, from the appeals court. And uh, some people say that he should have kept on appealing it um, because he started it and it's his job to defend the state. And, you know, if he, you know, if he didn't truly believe that it was unconstitutional, that it's his duty to continue on. Other people say that, no, you know, it's, it's his job to manage the resources of his department, and he's also free to change his mind and act as a part of the system of checks and balances. Um, so there's some disagreement on whether or not he's able to do that. On the matter, however, of costing the state money, uh, that was more cut and dried. Like you said, from the outset, um, both the General Assembly and the governor's office have hired separate sets of private lawyers to work alongside uh, Cooper's team of lawyers on this. Um, and, you know, I, it, it gets kind of lost in the uh, in the weeds sometimes, but, you know, it's not Roy Cooper himself who's personally defending these cases in court. You know, it's, it's deputy attorneys general and, uh, you know, special you know, attorneys and things like that. Um, uh, so they said that because of uh, Cooper's political statements that maybe his employees weren't going to do a very good job on the case, which is why they've hired the outside lawyers. Um, and the the General Assembly has spent uh, nearly $5 million so far on their lawyers, and we don't even know how much the governor's office has spent. Uh, they, haven't, they haven't said. Um, and... What uh, and they've essentially been doing duplicate work, right? Yes, because they're not they're not splitting up the the workload. It doesn't sound like right. That's uh, I spoke with the DOJ and they said that uh, they hadn't split up any of the work. The the DOJ saw this as their case, and you know, if other people want to hire these outside lawyers, they can. But you know, they're going to go ahead and do all the work anyways. So um, yeah, all the work was duplicative, and so by by bowing out essentially at the end here. Um, Really, there's an argument that Cooper is saving the state money. Uh, you know, if the Supreme Court does agree to pick this up, there's not going to be state employees traveling to Washington, D.C., you know, buying plane tickets, staying in hotels, eating meals, printing out hundreds or thousands of pages, you know, all, all of those kind of things that go into, uh, you know, arguing a case and preparing for an appeal and preparing for oral arguments at the Supreme Court. Um, and it's not huge savings, but it is savings. And that, I mean, that's that's the opposite of the claim that uh, he was costing the state money. Uh, so in the end, uh, we gave it a, uh, a mostly false. You can go online and, and read that if you want to get all of those details. Yeah, so sort of a two-parter that uh, he's not 
costing the state money by bowing out, uh, and it was a little fuzzier on the issue of whether he's uh, if it's okay for him as an attorney general to stop representing the state mid case. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Will uh, and Colin. We'll be right back with more Domecast. We've got. We'll talk about uh, Mark Meadows and uh, what happened in his ethics case this week. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, continued stream of uh, presidential ticket members to North Carolina, uh, and uh, we'll play uh, some tape from an interview that two interviews that uh, I did with the candidates for state treasurer. And of course, we'll have uh, headliners of the week. So stick around. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month? A year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. We've got Anna Douglas on the line from D.C., and uh, Anna, you wrote an interesting story this week about Mark Meadows. Uh, This is an ethics case that's been going on for some time, but we didn't have a whole lot of detail uh, until this week about what has really been, uh, what they've really been looking into. So um, give us a little background on um, where this all came from, please. Sure. So, so the heart of the issue, it really revolves around a, a severance package that, that was paid to a former chief of staff, which it, basically for a congressman, that's kind of their top ranking person in, in their office here in D.C. And so this, this person that, that's in question in Mark Meadows' office, he's no longer employed there. Um, in fact, what, what, what really came to light this week and what sort of uh, put this back in, in, into the public sphere is a report from an ethics uh, agency. They're, they're a nonpartisan independent group here in D.C. It's called the Office of Congressional Ethics. They don't have subpoena power. They can't penalize anyone. But what they can do is they can look into allegations of misconduct of, of a range of different issues, and then they can forward their referral of, and forward their findings onto the official House Ethics Committee. And, and that's the ethics committee that, that most people might be familiar with. They have subpoena powers. They can hold hearings. They can call witnesses. Generally, at that level, you have a lot of of attorneys involved, and they can actually level a penalty on on a member of Congress, at least on the House side. And so, you know, to kind of bring everybody up to speed, this has been going on for some time. Politico actually broke this story uh, last year, last fall, and that led to the Office of Congressional Ethics picking it up. And fast forward a few months now, we've got a report that – that shows not only is there a severance package in question and whether or not that was appropriate and legal under House rules, but what led to this uh, to former chief of staff eventually resigning and, and being asked to not come back to the office were actually allegations of, of uh, behavior that made women in the office uncomfortable. Um, and so, you know, things like touching someone's hair, hugging someone too closely, uh, things of that nature. And, and so all of that allegedly was going on in Mark Meadows' office. And uh, I think various documents sort of give a little bit of credit here that, that Congressman Meadows did respond pretty quickly 
he did uh, bar uh, his chief of staff from coming back to the office. So he might get a little bit of credit in the public eyes for that. But at the same time, there's this question of whether or not after being barred from the office, was this person working? And, and that might get him in trouble with the ethics committee. If, if he's found to have been paying someone who was not performing any work, uh, that, that's unfortunately for him against House rules. But uh, they've not ruled on this yet. They, they released some documents yesterday because there are transparency rules and laws in place that require for them to, to put forth certain reports. But they, they can take more time to investigate, which is what they said they will do. Okay. And who knows how long that could go. And the, the timeline, it sounds like, was that this was late in 2014. The congressman mm-hmm. started to get these these complaints about his chief of staff. He told the chief of staff, it sounds like, not to come back to the office uh, in mm-hmm. October or November of 2014, I think. And then, it was October. October. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he continued to be paid uh, a salary of, uh, I think about twelve thousand a month or so, one hundred fifty-five thousand a year was, I believe, his salary. Right. Yeah, his uh, annual salary was one hundred fifty-five thousand dollars. Which, you know, if people are wondering, is that more or less than what others make? That that's probably in line with what the most House uh, chief of staff make, especially with his level of experience. He didn't have a ton of political experience before he came to work for Mark Meadows, so. Uh, yeah, it's possible that when he was asked not to come back to D.C., it is it is totally possible that he continued work in, in Congressman Meadows' district office in, in western North Carolina. I don't know that for sure. Um, that's obviously part of the investigation that the Ethics Committee will take up. Okay. And we should say that uh, uh, Representative Meadows has been influential as part of the conservative wing of the House Republican caucus in D.C., uh, he's been part of the Freedom Caucus that um, was uh, not always happy with uh, the what Speaker Boehner, uh, how Speaker Boehner was leading the caucus. And, and now I suppose, uh, I'm not sure what they're, how, how they feel about uh, um, the new House Speaker, Paul Ryan. Um, well, if the Freedom Caucus has, has given uh, Speaker Ryan a little bit of heartburn. It does not seem to be as, uh, as 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 much turmoil between the two of two of those groups as there was between uh, Freedom Caucus and, and former Speaker John Boehner. Uh, and that's certainly where you know that's a badge that, that Mark, Mark Meadows can wears with honor up here that he was instrumental and a leader and in, in ousting Speaker Boehner, and uh, you know that was early on in his tenure as a congressman. So he's well known in, in D.C. Uh, in circles for that, and I suspect too that that might be why, uh, at least with Washington D.C. media, in addition to North Carolina media, there's there's been a good deal of attention on on this ethics issue, and it probably relates to the role that the leadership role that he plays with the Freedom Caucus. He's he's pretty well known. Okay, well, thanks, Anna and uh, Colin. Uh, the other uh, uh, political news this week has been that. Uh, uh, the members of the national ticket uh, continue to to come in and out of North Carolina. Thursday, uh, Trump, and uh, earlier in the week, Tim Kaine, uh, who was in Asheville and then uh, Fayetteville, and uh, his wife made a stop in Raleigh, right? Yeah, so um, it's sort of been interesting to me to see which uh, – 
folks, the uh, campaigns are sending to North Carolina as a swing state. We really haven't seen a whole lot of Hillary Clinton here. Uh, it's been at least, I think, three weeks, maybe more, uh, since she was last in North Carolina. But Tim Kaine, since the uh, Democratic convention, has been here a lot. Um, he had, I think, one stop in Greensboro a week before last. Uh, and then this week he was in Fayetteville and Asheville for rallies. Uh, and then his wife, Ann Holton, who was with him at the rallies and in Asheville, uh, then uh, came to Raleigh to sort of speak to uh, campaign volunteers at the Clinton campaign headquarters up in North Raleigh. Uh, she said it was her first uh, solo campaign appearance without her husband. She later did the same sort of stop uh, the following day in uh, Charlotte and Greensboro. Uh, so we seem to be I don't know if it's proximity to Virginia, but the uh, the Kane family seems to be the uh, the preferred surrogates that are uh, going around uh, North Carolina on Clinton's behalf. Whereas the the Trump folks, uh, I think, recognize that North Carolina is a, a must win state for them, so they're scheduling a pretty regular diet of uh, of Trump uh, headlined rallies uh, here in North Carolina. Uh, and the other interesting thing about the uh, the Kane visit uh, was uh, his uh, sort of impromptu stop at a. Um, place in, in Asheville uh, Brewery, uh, I guess in one of the, the hipper neighborhoods of, of Asheville, uh, after he had his barbecue dinner uh, customary for anyone on the, the campaign trail in North Carolina. But he went to the brewery, uh, had a beer, and then joined a, a couple of local bluegrass musicians for a couple songs where he broke out his harmonica, played Wagon Wheel, played I think My Home is Across the Blue Ridge Mountains, even sang a little bit. Um, I'm sure that helps the, the Clinton campaign establish him as sort of a, an everyday guy that you could uh, get along with. Um, but uh, certainly something we may be seeing more of uh, here in North Carolina as we, we get closer and the, the campaign visits uh, keep on coming in the next uh, couple months. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I'm going to play some tape here from a couple of interviews uh, with the candidates for state treasurer. I sat down with uh, the Republican, Dale Falwell, and the Democrat, Dan Blue III, who are running uh, for uh, the very powerful position to uh, with with control over the state pension plan and uh, with also authority over um, the state health plan and other aspects of state government. Uh, so uh, we talked a little bit with both candidates about the state of the pension plan and the health plan and uh, what they would do to uh, improve both as treasurer. Uh, so uh, we'll listen to that now, and we'll be back afterward with our headliner of the week. Stay with us. This is Dan Blue the Third, and I'm running for state treasurer. Uh, I love this state, and so much of the things that are important to this state flow through the state treasurer's office. So the three things that come immediately to mind are the pension that we use to allow our state employees and teachers to retire with the dignity and security that they've earned. And that both allows us to retain the current people that we have working, but also to attract new ones and make sure that the, uh, the state is operating efficiently and effectively. Second, it touches on a health plan, and health is a very important consideration, again, for that same pool of state employees, teachers, firefighters, first responders, but also for the larger public. The state of North Carolina is the largest employer in North Carolina and has the largest health plan in North Carolina. So not only do we have the responsibility to the 700,000 lives that are covered under our health plan, but we've got a greater responsibility and opportunity to make sure that we are advocating for better health for all North Carolinians and using our size and our heft to actually make improvements for everyone uh, as a consumer as well as as a government. And then the third very important area is in the issue of the area of local government. Uh, the local government commission 
which is housed in the treasurer's office, is instrumental in making sure that not only our state is accessing the capital markets in a responsible fashion, but also that our municipalities and counties are operating efficiently and also are accessing the capital markets responsibly. And we, we term it as accessing the capital markets, but it's really important to allow all of our counties and our cities and our state to be able to borrow funds to invest in infrastructure, whether it is roads or school facilities or water treatment facilities. We're experiencing a period where our infrastructure nationwide is deteriorating, particularly here in North Carolina. What do you think is the state of the state pension plan? It's one of the country's most well-funded plans, but uh, my understanding is it's not as well-funded as it used to be. So where do you kind of see it right now? Is it in good shape? I do believe it's in good shape with room for improvement. So most most figures come back saying that we're about 96% funded, which means if everyone that is currently uh, paying into the pension uh, were to retire, we would be able to honor our commitments to them for 95, 96 cents out of every dollar. Uh, Now, clearly, we'd prefer to be 100% funded or higher than 100% funded, uh, but some of that's just based on market fluctuation and the returns on the pension. So we are healthy, uh, but we need to be healthier. There's a lot of tension and a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on these pension funds across the uh, the nation to try to make sure that they are generating adequate returns in the current market environment because there's a lot riding on it. So we will always look for ways to trim management fees, for example, uh, or to get into areas that allow us to achieve invest, excuse me, achieve returns that are appropriate given the risk that we are taking or the risk that we are avoiding. But bottom line is that we have to make sure that we protect our pension because there are over 900,000 active and retired state employees and teachers, again, that are depending on that pension so that they can retire comfortably with security and with dignity. Uh, should the treasurer be the sole decision maker on the pension plan or should there be some kind of a board that does these, these actions? It's always uh, fraught to ask somebody who's running for a job to whether they want to have less power in that job. But what what do you think uh, the ideal uh, job of the treasurer would be? Should they be the sole fiduciary uh, position? Uh, It's not so much about the power. Um, In the end, we want to make sure we're doing right for the folks that have an interest in the pension. I think that what you have to balance is the need, the demand for accountability, uh, and then the fact that a lot of these boards end up – mired in politics, I guess is the way I would put it. Um, If you can find a solution that brings more people to the table that still allows you to maintain the accountability that you have with the sole fiduciary, uh, but minimizes the politics that you often end up with with a larger board, I would absolutely be for it uh, because it's not about retaining power at all. You know, I look back to the example of our UNC Board of Governors and the debacle that we sort of went through last year. Uh, you know, keeping in mind that these are individual appointees who are very well regarded, very respected in their communities, very intelligent and thoughtful about what they do. Uh, but when brought together in a committee form or in a board form, it falls apart. Uh, we spend a lot of time making a very bis- basic hiring decision, for example, uh, and the delay, the, the acrimony, the things that sort of spilled out around that process lead me to believe that that's probably not something that you want to see with a $90 billion pension fund. 
So whatever we do with that, we have to make sure that those $90 billion are serving the people that have contributed to it and the people that are relying on it, and that any measures that we take uh, ensure the protection and the long-term security of those funds. Uh, my name is Dale Falwell um, from Winston-Salem. I'm applying for the job to be the next Chief Financial Officer of North Carolina, which your listeners will know to be the State Treasurer. Uh, lifelong resident of uh, Winston-Salem, but over the last three years, I've had the responsibility of paying off North Carolina's $2.7 billion of unemployment debt, and now I'm applying for the job to face the next financial threat uh, facing North Carolina, which are the unfunded health care and pension liabilities. Uh, I tend to work on the invisible things. My wife is an artist and a singer, so that when she does something for you, you can hear it or you can see it. I work on the invisible things that are really impacting North Carolinians and have spent the last 12 years in Raleigh focusing on attacking problems and not people, saving lives, saving minds, and saving money for North Carolinians. So let's take the pension fund first. Uh, what kind of shape is it in? It's uh, apparently one of the country's most well-funded pension plans, right? That's correct. Uh, the pension plan is well-funded in relation to other states, but it has very serious challenges uh, facing it over the next 15 years. Number one is the Treasurer just reported that the $90 billion state pension plan, which was, by the way is one of the largest pools of capital in the world, uh, only earned, earned less than 1% for the last 12 months and paid out hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in investment fees. The plan is supposed to earn 7.25%. It's all based on it earning 7.25. It earned less than one. As a matter of fact, for the last, for the 15 year period just ended, it has not earned the 7.25%. If you look at that 15 year period in total. The reason this is important to, uh, to your readers and your listeners is that the, uh, legislature is going to have to put in hundreds and hundreds of millions more dollars a year into the state pension plan because it's not earning what it's supposed to. And that's just the pension plan. I am super excited about the opportunity to cut out waste, fraud, and abuse out of the state health plan. You know, it has 750,000 people in it. And I know from personal experience of being on that state health plan that there's enormous opportunities and for your listeners and readers, I just ask them rhetorically, how much waste, fraud, and abuse do you think there is in $100 billion? Where is the with the waste, fraud, or abuse, do you think? Because it seems like the vast majority of the money that's just, just going into, uh, into to, to help benefits. So, um, so could, could you really root out waste, fraud, and abuse and make that the, the kind of dent that you're talking about making? I can because I have. I did it at a $3 billion operation. If, if we find just a smidgen at, at, a, at, a, at the state treasurer's office that we found at the unemployment agency, we're going to be just fine on, on what I just said. But let me give you a brief example. A few years ago, our son was showing off on a snowboard behind Reynolds High School and broke his femur. I was in Raleigh when it happened. Twelve days after he broke his femur, I received a check in the mail for $525.10. Now, all your listeners and readers, when they get a check from an insurance company made out directly to them, at least for one second, they think that money belongs to me. 
I knew who that money belonged to. It belonged to the Forsyth County EMS service, which, by the way, is being subsidized by the property taxpayers of Wake County and all the counties in North Carolina because they all lose money. So I called the state health plan, the treasurer's office, and I said, why are you sending me a check that belongs to somebody else? They said, we refuse to do that. I said, no, they didn't refuse to answer the phone. They didn't refuse to dispatch, and they didn't refuse to transport my son to the hospital. They said, well, we, we refuse because they won't negotiate with us. So I started looking into it because I'm a student of Hayek and von Mises, who are Austrian economists, and they taught us that any time you reward a behavior, you should expect to get more of it. So I started looking into it, and I found a state employee who called the ambulance 22 times that year in Forsyth County in Winston-Salem, I think for the specific purpose of collecting $525.10 and never paid the ambulance company. So no one's going to walk in the front door when I'm the state treasurer with a 10% solution to any problem. But there are hundreds, if not thousands, of little bitty solutions that when you stack them on top of each other, then all of a sudden you start to bend the curve. But you can't do it unless you set a culture, which I did at the unemployment agency with the state employees, let them know that and need them to ride a little bit faster in order to increase customer service and to find more waste, fraud, and abuse. And if you make a mistake, if you'll just tell us, we're going to pick you up and we're going to dust you off and we're going to keep proceeding. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. Welcome back to Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we talk about uh, who the newsmaker is, who is having the uh, most impact, or at least is most interesting, in North Carolina politics this week. Uh, so we'll start with Craig. What? Who is your Headliner of the Week, Craig? I am picking uh, the movie... Uh, I almost said movie star Aaron Brockovich. <laughs> I got all tangled You're up. You're picking Julia Roberts? <laughs> I'm not picking Julia Roberts either. Starting again, I'm picking Aaron Brockovich, who, along with a, a national environmental organization, is petitioning the uh, EPA to come up with a national standard for a compound called hexavalent chromium, a toxic uh, chemical, which is found in uh, coal ash. And there's a concern that elevated levels of it are seeping into people with, uh, uh, who live near coal ash plants into their wells. Um, she, she's the one who kind of figured out that there was widespread pollution from that same chemical in California uh, and, uh, and, and kind of led to a big movement to put a stop to that and led to the movie starring Julia Roberts. So it's Aaron Brockovich. All right. Aaron Brockovich, the real Aaron Brockovich, uh, for Headliner of the Week. Uh, who's your Headliner of the Week, Will? Uh, I'm going to go with Senator Richard Burr, um, in large part because no one really expected him to be in any headlines this week. Um, everyone expected him to kind of cruise to victory in his Senate race a few months ago, but uh, that has not been the case. Uh, the uh, The National Review, a conservative magazine, actually wrote about uh, how uh, it's been a kind of a, a combination of uh, – unpopularity of Donald Trump and unpopularity of Pat McCrory and then also just Burr's having a lot of money on hand but not really spending any of it on ads that have let uh, Deborah Ross uh, surge in the polls. So now we see, uh, we've got a story in the News and Observer right now on uh, Burr attacking Ross on uh, 
her stance on TPP, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, which is a trade deal that they both oppose. So it's uh, it's kind of an interesting <laughs> interesting attack. Um, but uh, those trade deals have been uh, kind of a, a surprise issue of this election campaign. I actually wrote a PolitiFact article about uh, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and uh, trade deals uh, when Trump was in Winston-Salem recently. So, uh, yeah, Richard Burr <laughs> talking about trade deals and his Senate race. Richard Burr, and uh, I think the, the story indicated he – did he vote for uh, – Trade Promotion uh, Authority, I think. I he uh, he had previously supported uh, a bill that basically would have uh, allowed treaties like the TPP to be fast-tracked, fast-tracked. Um, although his defense is that uh, he didn't know the TPP was as bad as he now thinks it is when he voted on it. Ah, okay. Okay, uh, so we've got Aaron Brockovich and Senator Richard Burr, who's having a closer race than he might have expected. Uh, Colin, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going to go with a sort of unusual choice. I am picking um, a character that was unveiled this morning, Donald Ducks, who is a person in a Donald Duck costume who is tailing Donald Trump on the campaign trail, including his rally on Thursday night in uh, Charlotte. He's, uh, this character is going to be standing outside. Uh, the the goal of this character, which I guess is being funded by the Democratic uh, National Committee, is to highlight uh, Trump's refusal to release his uh, income tax statements uh, to determine sort of his uh, wealth positions, how many pa- many taxes he pays, that sort of thing. Uh, but the uh, duck mascot on the campaign trail is not a new thing. Um, we saw it here in North Carolina back in 2014 uh, during the Hagan Tillis Senate race when the uh, Republicans were trying to highlight uh, Hagan's uh, refusal to uh, participate in an additional debate, uh, and they sent a person in a duck costume. It wasn't a Donald Duck costume, but a, duck, a kind of crude-looking duck costume uh, around to a bunch of uh, sites where she was campaigning. So uh, for re- re- resurrecting a, a trope from the 2014 race, I'm going with Donald Ducks. Okay. Donald Ducks, uh, the <laughs> the mascot for uh, Trump's refusal to uh, put out his tax returns and other... Uh, uh, and, and spill on other matters. Uh, so we've got Aaron Brockovich, Senator Richard Burr, and Donald Ducks. That's an eclectic uh, group here to choose from. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Aaron Brockovich only because uh, I need uh, Julia Roberts to make a, a movie about the North Carolina coal ash controversy, and that seems more likely if we uh, if, if Aaron Brockovich. But who will play Ken Rudo? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I was thinking maybe Jonah Hill. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've already got this all cast in here. Yeah, um, and I don't know about Megan Davies. I don't. Hard to don't, say. Don't. Uh, uh, Meryl Streep. Oh, no, there you go. Streep. All right. Yeah. Wow, we've got an all-star <laughs> cast coming in. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for Domecast today. Uh, please join us next week. Uh, we'll see you later. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 